Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 256. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell with you from those Zone Radio studios in Bangor. And we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength couple of uh, super conversations for you a little bit later on in the program. We talk with author Jarrett Krozaska about his new graphic novel, Sunshine, all about his time as a young man in high school working at Camp Sunshine in Maine with kids battling cancer. It's a very interesting book and a powerful story as well. Up first, talking about some recent media events as we talk with Michael Sokolow, professor at the University of Maine and author and uh, Publishes a lot in newspapers around the country. His thoughts on the media. And we talked with him about the settlement in the Fox Dominion case. Now, we recorded this conversation with Michael uh, before the big shakeup at Fox and the dismissal of Tucker Carlson. But still, some interesting information on uh, Fox, their reach, the lawsuit, and more. Michael Sokolow here on Downtown. Hi, Rick. Great to have you with us uh, on this uh, day after the big settlement that has, uh, well, I think, Disappointed a lot of people who thought it was going to end differently, but uh, I, it seemed to make sense for me that this was the way it would play out. Right, I, I think so. I, I think the chances that this would get to the stars on the uh, on the witness stand and Rupert Murdoch being questioned were very slim. Now you pointed out, and you've talked about this with us before, that the number of people who actually walks watch Fox News on a regular basis is nowhere near as big as people might think. And so how much impact do they have on America as a, as a whole? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting question. The, the first part of that question is they have less than they used to. So about 3 million, a little over 3 million people in the year of 2020, which was a big news year. There was an election and COVID and everything. A little over 3 million people watched primetime Fox News. Uh, in January of this year, the latest numbers show about 1.95 million. They've lost about a third of their audience in three years. Now, m- most of that, CNN has also lost a million viewers. Most of it is cord cutting. Most of it has nothing mm. to do with the politics. But um, they're just not nearly as powerful as they were five years ago. Now, the thing about their ability to persuade and influence is they don't change anybody's mind. Fox News doesn't change anybody's mind. Right. But it does motivate people who would otherwise might stay home to go out and vote for the candidates that Fox supports. So Fox does have an effect. It's just kind of limited, and it's not what most people think. Now you, you mentioned those numbers. Uh, by contrast, I think uh, uh, ABC uh, World News Tonight, uh, David Muir is, I believe, number one among the, the three major networks. How many people might watch them in a given night? Oh, he's, he's nine, nine, ten million. Uh, he's more than three times, wow. four times the size of Fox News, David Muir. All right. So in terms of, of Fox, we know what was in it for them. We know why it was important for them to settle. It's interesting they, they let it go on as long as they did. Why was it in Dominion's best interest to settle? <laughs> There's 787 million reasons. <laughs> the, the, the amount is astonishing. You know, I, I was curious because I, I, I wanted to run the numbers. I thought, you know, if Fox News hired an employee 
to make up for the payment they're making. How much would that employee make since Fox News began in 1996? <laughs> and it's $29 million a year since Fox News began. Tucker Carlton makes $35 million a year. So it's, it's a little less than the most important person on air at Fox for 30 years that they've never had to pay up. I mean, it, it's so mind-boggling, the scale of this. Uh, you know, the entire capitalized value, it, it's, it's owned by a private hedge fund, the um, private equity fund, the, the Dominion voting system. But their entire value was at most $100 million before yesterday. So imagine you owned a company and suddenly somebody offered you after, by the way, after they d defamed you and ruined mm. your company's reputation, but they offered you seven times the value of your company. I guess I would take that, too. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, we've still got uh, the Smartmatics lawsuit. Uh, I think they're asking for a little less than $3 billion. Do you expect it will follow a similar path? It will, but it won't be nearly as much for a different reason. Smartmatic is a much smaller company um, to begin with. And Dominion, the lies about Dominion, here's where it gets a little bit into the weeds, but the lies about Dominions were big, they were national, and they were repeated several times. The Smartmatic software was actually only used in one small area of Los Angeles. Mm. And so if you go back and you look at Fox's series of lies, they actually um, lied much, much more about Dominion than Smartmatic. So uh, it, it'll be a lot harder. Smartmatic is a smaller company with a lot less reach, um, and Fox, got, uh, Fox stopped talking about them much more quickly. It's, good, it's not going to be anywhere in the ballpark of this, but Smartmatic will make out with a large amount of money. We'll talk more about the impact on Fox in a little bit, but in terms of smaller outlets uh, like a Newsmax, does this strike a little fear into their hearts? Actually, it's funny you say that, Rich. I thought just the opposite. I thought mm. yesterday's uh, one of yesterday's big winners was Newsmax and OAN because it, there's a needle you can thread here, right? You can um, you can say really crazy stuff that has no a relationship to reality, as long as you don't have the phone and text messages and emails <laughs> showing that you don't believe it. Because the settlement was based not on the fact that they were telling defamatory falsehoods. The settlement was based on the fact that they knowingly, with malice, told mm. the defamatory falsehoods. So, if, you know, if you're a QAnon believer and you work at Newsmax and you want to spread the gospel of uh, of Donald Trump winning a landslide in 2020 and you don't have texts and emails saying that you don't believe it, you're fine. Well, and that's what made this such a difficult case to begin with. The standard is so high because you, you have to know that what you're saying is false and you have to be saying it with the intent to defame and harm the other party. Yeah, and, and a, a fascinating thing after the settlement, Smartmatic gave a very brief statement. I, I read it in Slate, and um, it was very happy. And they said, you know, essentially, you ain't seen nothing yet. But the Smartmatic, um, the Smartmatic discovery hasn't happened yet. And that'll decide how big, uh, you know, how big anything they win is, because um, I think it's going to be a little harder to find the malice for Smartmatic. But but we'll see. We don't know yet. Now, does Fox face any real financial peril from these investors who were talking about suing the company? Unfortunately not. I mean, the amount of money that Fox News has is staggering. They were preparing, the Wall Street Journal on Friday had an article about this. They were preparing 
a stock buyback to enrich, to enrich their shareholders, meaning the Murdoch shareholders. And over the course of the last couple of years, they've been hoarding cash for the stock buyback. So they're sitting on $4 billion. So a $787 million hit to their $4 billion stock buyback just reduces it down to $3 billion. It, it's, it's really not as, as big a hit to them as, uh, as one would hope, frankly. We're talking with Michael Sokolow here on Downtown. Last night, apparently between 7 and 11, those primetime hours, there was no mention on Fox of the settlement <laughs> yesterday, and that, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. Uh, no apology as part of the settlement, and so will this change practices at the network? I, I really think it's too early to tell. I, I really do, for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, the biggest reason is um, is we won't know for a, a few months whether they install a new kind of um, approval process for the legal reasons. And it, not to get too into the weeds, but it kind of follows a question about whether they can get liability insurance. I mean, it's hmm. hard to imagine. They had liability insurance going into this lawsuit, which helped them pay the legal bills to a certain point. But I, I can't imagine if they don't change what they do that any insurer in the world would insure them. So, so it's really it's a complicated question, and, we, and anybody who says they know that Fox News will change or won't change has no idea right now. Now, we know from those internal texts that uh, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, and others were very concerned and wanted to make sure they didn't alienate uh, the base, the viewership. But for any network, you want to try and find a way to grow your audience how does Fox do that? Because they seem to be catering everything to this very specific, mostly older, mostly white group of viewers. How do they branch out and, and plan for the future? Uh, Rich, you know, you're, you're thinking back in the old 20th century broadcast mode, <laughs> the mass audience. But in the era of, of cord cutting, the fringe element of your audience, the people who are still willing to pay are the people you need to cater to. So that's why Fox is doing that. They're going further and further out on a limb to retain the last people who are still willing to pay for them. Anybody young has cut the cord, so they just don't care about that. So uh, in terms of that, we were talking about this before the show this afternoon. Now, to get people organized enough to do this is highly unlikely. But, but would some sort of consumer backlash against cable carriers, satellite companies carry any weight if people said, I don't want to be here uh, uh, paying for Fox when I don't want to watch it and they're spreading misinformation? Unfortunately not. And that, that goes back decades. I mean, the hero of that movement was John McCain, who every two years would put a bill in the Senate and introduce it in the Senate and get a partner to do it in the House. And every time it would be voted down in committee, ne never even made the floor, I don't think. John McCain kept saying, and you could see his speeches, they're hilarious. He was against bundling of cable. He said, why don't we just pay for the channels we want? You know, it's a very simple consumer thing. When you go in a supermarket, they don't make you buy five different brands of soup. They, they let you choose the <laughs> brand of soup you want. Cable TV should be exactly the same. But the cable TV lobby and, bump, and uh, bundling, it's called, bundling the channels together, um, you know, for decades has defeated that. So I, I don't think a movement's really going to work. Now, we know the Republican Party, the right wing in, in general, has uh, seen media as a building block uh, for their future, for locking up that base and, and doing what they need to do, getting the word out by keeping that loyalty out there. And uh, are we seeing more and more efforts to 
take control of local media. I think of the Sinclair Group and, and what they've done right here in the state of Maine with, I think it's the CBS affiliate in Portland. Yeah, I, you know, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure what's going to end up happening there because Sinclair got in trouble with their purchase of the regional sports networks and they're, they're having serious financial issues compared to Nexstar, for instance, which is, which is building this News Nation channel. And I haven't watched enough of the News Nation channel to see how it's working, but there is a lot of different moving parts on the local and the broadcast and, and what it means in terms of the politics of it. And, you know, there is this theory that as Fox goes out and chases its fringe, as MSNBC goes out and chases its fringe, that the middle is going to open up, you know? And this is the theory that Chris Licht at, at CNN is doing right now, you know? It, um, getting rid of the people who, who kind of, you know, whether it's Chris Cuomo, Brian Stelter, getting rid of people who sort of um, are identified with specific political positions and, and trying for the middle. It, it'll be interesting to see if it works. So as you look at this as a media historian, where can we point the fingers of blame? When did it start to go wrong? Is it as simple as CNN and the birth of the 24-hour news cycle and the need to fill those hours leading to the blurry line between news and commentary? You know, it's funny. I'm not sure how wrong it is, and I don't mean that as a, as a, I don't mean that as a critique of what you said. I think we overestimate how much Fox really influences our political sphere. And I'll give you an example. Joe Biden in the last six months has basically halved his disapproval rating. He's, if you go to 538 and you look at his rating, his disapproval to approval has been, has been closing the gap like crazy over the last six months. And literally, it's, it's half of what it was six months ago. Fox News attacks him every single night, and it's not working. Just the opposite. He's getting more popular. And so, it, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Now, the the second part is the misinformation, the idea that we're all our own experts and that we trust our neighbor over a scientist. That is a social media phenomenon. I would say the misinformation question is really a Facebook issue. If you're working with young journalists, you know, what, what do you say to them if they, if they think of a future and certainly would like to uh, be financially well off at some point, too? I, I would think some of them have to look at the cable outlets and say, you know, that's that's the way to go. No one's paying the hard news guy a lot of money. But if I can be a commentator, if I can be on one side or the other and stir people up, there's money to be made and a career to be had. Yeah, unfortunately, it's very true. And, and, uh, and you know, the interesting thing is the smart student, what they would do is they'd go work on a local paper or a local TV station, and they'd get the reporting skills that they need in right. order to understand the formatting of the news articles. Because the thing that CNN, I mean, not CNN, but the thing that Fox News or MSNBC wants is somebody who looks and sounds just like a professional reporter, but still supports their political position, mm. you know, in terms of strategic calm. So that's the, that's the way to go, is to get the training first and, and then get there. But I agree, where the money is, is is quite problematic in that sense. And you mentioned the numbers for the network newscast, but are those much like Fox? Are they largely older Americans that are watching they are, but they make, they make, I mean, so much money. You know, ABC News, World News Tonight, makes over 400, uh, it makes probably around 450 or $500 million a year, which is a third of what Fox makes operating 24 hours a day. And David Weir is only on 30 minutes. And the reason is drugs. <laughs> In 1998, the Food and Drug Administration allowed uh, much loosening and the FTC together 
a huge loosening of drug advertisements. And if you turn on any of these local <laughs> newscasts today, it's nothing but drug ads. And they're, they're sold at a premium, and uh, they're what keeping, there's what keeping that, those channels and networks lucrative. And how do you look at the balance of, uh, well, the, the desire to find real information out there uh, as it swung more toward the national outlets as we see a disappearance of local newspapers, a less local reporting on uh, local TV stations, even the network affiliates? It's a great question, and it's not really – the dynamic has reversed itself. Now it's up to the audience to figure out credibility and accuracy. It used to be up to the journalists to prove their credibility and accuracy. Mm. But if you believe vaccines are, you know, if you believe vaccines are, are some demonic thing and, and they shouldn't be taken, now the audience is giving the credibility to the nutcase who's, who's sending that around. So it's really a, a conundrum that there's no answer to except, I mean, what people are pointing out is media literacy, understanding how to counter your own bias. But it doesn't seem to be working quite that well. And does it matter for the good of the country that we don't have a place we can turn to where the majority of Americans agree they're going to get largely truthful news and information? That, you know, what's interesting, Rich, is we live in Maine, which is the oldest state in the United States. And there are enough people here in Maine who can remember that world and know what's been lost. My concern that's fascinating, I mean, that I'm sort of fascinated by, is, is basically people 10 years younger than us are never saw that world mm. and never lived in that world, have no idea what a, what a you know, Peter Jennings or a Walter Cronkite or a Huntley Brinkley were. And, and not only that, if you go on YouTube, you can't even really understand by watching them what they meant to people watching in the 60s. So it's, it's you know, I'm not sure if we'll get it back. I don't know who it'll be when it does come back. But it is, a, it is a fascinating question to have so many people who did not live in that world. And, and are we remembering it the way it really was? Or, or were there a, a fairly solid percentage of people who in 1968 said, I knew that Cronkite was a communist. There he is telling us to get out of Vietnam. There's a, there's a great book out by, a, by an MIT professor named Heather Hendershot called When the News Broke. And it's, it's, it's exactly that. With the police riot in Chicago in 1968, um, you know, CBS reported it accurately. She went back, she watched it all and everything, and it was professional journalism. It was all accurate and everything. And the letters ran 11 to 1 against CBS's reporting wow. for the Chicago police who were beating up the hippies. You know, they, the people didn't believe what they were told or what they saw with their own eyes. They believed that the hippies attacked the police and got what they deserved. It, it, it was a, it's a fascinating study, and she argues that basically it all started there, where people just refused to believe what was in front of them. Mike, this is Bruce Pratt. The question I would ask about that was, I mean, I, I remember that very well, I was 17 years old, that Daly and his machine were pumping out a lot of that stuff to other media sources in Illinois that the national were also picking up. So was was that part of it, that there was, that was the first real pushback against journalism in, in order to save somebody's skin? Yeah, absolutely. And, and she makes that argument. You know, everybody looks at Spiro Agnew and Richard Nixon attacking the media. Um, but she goes back and she looks right after the convention that he did. Um, Mayor Daley was incredible what he said about the press and the media. Uh, and both to Chicago and local Illinois and to the, to the national media. 
And uh, he went on kind of a rampage, and, and it really hurt. And she shows how it hurt. Um, and Johnson kind of joined him a little bit, but not quite as much. But it hurt Humphrey in that election to have the Democrats saying that, um, you know, the media is lying to you about what's going on in Vietnam and what happened in Chicago. And so, so in some ways, Nixon, her, her book is excellent. In some ways, Nixon took that little teeny start and blew it up like crazy because he saw it effect, how effective it was. All right, let me ask you this before we let you go, Michael. Uh, why aren't left-wing broadcasters as successful, whether it's in terms of rating or, or revenue, why aren't they as successful as the right-wing broadcasters? I mean, it depends on how you define successful. Uh, uh, right-wingers would tell you that national public radio has, you know, 20, 30 million listeners, as big as Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> and and right-wingers would call national public radio left-wing. So it's a little bit of a complicated question in that sense, is, is how we have the definitions. But, uh, I, I, you know, my guess is, it, yeah, I, I, it's a, it's a, that's a tough question that involves issues of skepticism and how the media, how audiences would approach uh, uh, their media. And I think, I think the, the left wing, I, I think the liberal, your average liberal is more willing to accept what the New York Times National Public Radio says as credible and verifiable um, than, than a right-winger. And so that creates it. You know, if we look at this giant middle of the mainstream media, and that creates the opening for the right-wing media. And do you think uh, NPR's departure from Twitter and other outlets that are considering the same thing will have any impact on that? I don't know. I mean, Twitter is a, Twitter is a mess. It's a, yeah. it's a fascinating yeah. mess. But the thing I'm realizing is more and more people are leaving it. Its, its influence is really, I mean, stark in the last six months. Twitter will not be America's assignment editor um, in the election of 2024. And that's fascinating to me. And, and is there someone out there that's likely to step up and assume that role? Or have people's habits changed in this relatively short period of time? Well, one what, what of the things I laugh about is in your lifetime, Rich, have you seen a luckier president than Joe Biden? No, all no. His enemies, <laughs> all of his enemies are collapsing at once. Yeah. Twitter is self-destructing. That guy O'Keefe, Project Veritas, thrown out of his own company. Uh, uh, Donald Trump is indicted. Uh, like, I mean, it's amazing to me. Um, and I don't think Biden or his administration has much to do with it. I mean, there's this whole argument, right, about Bragg and, and whatever and Garland. But it's, it's, I don't think I've seen a luckier president. Well, no, and then he, he gets Trump uh, to inadvertently help him by taking Ron DeSantis out of the picture, I yeah. think. <laughs> it's really, I mean, somebody should make a list of all the things that Biden has. I mean, the Pennsylvania Senate race, the, uh, the mm -hmm. Georgia, losing the two senators in Georgia. It's astonishing, the run of luck. Now, you could argue, well, no, it's not luck. The Republicans have caused their own problems. But those two things are sort of connected. <laughs> Gary? I, the other thing, and I, I, this just occurred to me, I wonder if part of the reason that Biden is getting this luck is that he isn't an easy target. He's not a woman. He's not a minority. It, it, the attacks that work so well for the right-wing pundits against, you know, the other coming in and replacing you don't work when because Biden isn't the other. He is an old white guy. Yeah, well, an interesting thing, I have an argument with a friend of mine who's right-wing, and for the, if you don't know this, they have the actual data on media appearances at University of California, Santa Barbara, and um, Biden is the least accessible media president 
since Ronald Reagan's second term when Reagan had Alzheimer's. And in the last hundred years, only Richard Nixon, when he was on the way to impeachment, and Ronald Reagan's second term, had fewer media appearances and media accessibilities than Joe Biden has had. They are absolutely hiding him. It's incredible how he is hidden, how well hidden he is. And I consider that brilliant strategy in the White House <laughs> comms part. But my friend says, no, it's a failure of the mainstream media. You know, the data is out there on how accessible Joe Biden is, but the New York Times isn't putting it on A1. Well, because they're too busy covering every move that Trump makes. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's a fascinating topic. Michael, always enjoy talking with you. Thank you so much for making some time for us this afternoon. Thanks, Rich. That's Michael Sokolow from the University of Maine with us here on Downtown. We'll take a break. We'll come back with author Jared Krozaska next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Sunshine, go away today. I don't feel much like dancing. Some Back on Downtown, our next guest is the author of a number of books, including... The award-winning Hey Kiddo, his newest graphic novel is entitled Sunshine, How One Camp Taught Me About Life, Death, and Hope. It's a story of his time as a, as a high school student working at Maine's Camp Sunshine, our conversation with Jarrett J. Krozaska here on Downtown. Hi, Rich. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. My gosh, what a wonderful book this was, and I, and I look forward to talking with you about it. But I want to go back a little bit and, and talk about Hey Kiddo and what uh, not just a success, but a phenomenon that was. Could you have imagined that, that such a personal story would resonate with so many people? No. <laughs> and, <laughs> no. And, and, and um there's something a couple of a couple of levels on that. One is w what I've learned from the success of Hey Kiddo is that the more specific you are in communicating your story, the more universal it becomes. So, you know, Hey Kiddo is about this story about this teenager in in the, the 1990s struggling with his mother's addiction to heroin and how that affected him in his childhood and how he doesn't know his father, how he's being raised by his grandparents. And, uh, you know, particularly a, a white male in blue-collar Worcester, Massachusetts in the 90s. Yet, I travel the country to talk about the book, and everywhere I go, I meet people who connect with it on such a deep level. And, you know, it doesn't matter where I am in the country or who I'm talking to, they're like, I recognize everything in that book because they they know because because they know those emotions uh, and and they're they're able to identify with what's going on there um now when you asked was i surprised by how successful it was now be before hey kiddo which is raw and unflinching and a, a young adult title before that i was known for writing just light-hearted campy, fun book, like the lunch lady graphic, <laughs> right? right? The lunch lady who fights crime. It definitely has more, more, more in common with Scooby-Doo and Batman 66 <laughs> than, 
anything else and uh, or picture books like Punk Farm and Peanut Butter and Jellyfish. So leading up to the publication of Hey Kiddo, I kept having this sinking feeling of, am I just shooting myself in the foot? Am I just <laughs> completely uh, wrecking my career? But, um, you know, my, my North Star in taking on creative projects is the thought of what is something that's going to cause me a certain level of anxiety and fear because it's something that I haven't done yet. It's something, it's a, maybe a topic that I haven't tackled yet. Um, and, and I think that when we, when we approach the unknown, when we take on things that might cause us a little bit of uneasiness, that's where we really grow as people and as creative individuals. Well, speaking of uh, venturing into the unknown, so uh, what kind of emotions were going through you as you prepared to head off as a young man right here to the state of Maine in Camp Sunshine? So it's interesting to, to, to think about this, but uh, so my, my high school, I went to Holy Name High School in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it, it being a, a, a Catholic high school, there was a lot of uh, encouragement for, for service. And so Every year, they would send three separate groups of seniors up in a, in a school van to, to volunteer at Camp Maine for at the camp in Maine for the week, and and it was such a part of the um, community and a part of the culture at my high school that it had its own spread in the yearbook. So coming up, you would look at Camp Sunshine or getting the chance to volunteer at Camp Sunshine kind of the same way you would look at like getting to go to prom, like this huge rite of passage. <laughs> and, and my high school was able to send about, it's about like 30 students every year, 30 seniors. Um, but you know, at the, at the informational meeting, you know, about like a hundred students would pile into that classroom to, to learn more about how they could go. And the faculty, you know, the only way to be fair was they pulled names from, from a hat and a hundred percent, there's no doubt that they pulled names from hat because the group of students that went up was so incredibly random. Like it wasn't just kids who were pulling, you know, 4.0 grade averages. Uh, and, and it's very much like I try to, when I'm describing that experience and that experience that's, that's retold in this book, it's kind of like the breakfast club in that. <laughs> I had, had that thought when I was reading it. That's so funny. You say that. <laughs> that's funny. So yeah, you had like, you know, loading up in the, in the, in the school van, there's there's the jock, there's the stoner, there's the theater geek, there's there's the AP nerd, uh, you know, just thrown in together to have this intense experience together, um, and 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 obviously it, it changed my life because I, uh, it's something that's still very much in front of mind, uh, you know, it, it, with or without this this book, you know, it, it's always been front of mind for me. Well, and and anybody who's worked at a summer camp knows. There's nothing like that experience. You you bond, you form friendships, and, and while you may rarely or never see those people again, anytime you work in a summer camp, uh, it becomes this, this emotional experience. And then you factor in everything going on with the young people you were working with, and uh, boy, that has to make such an indelible impression. You know, you absolutely hit the, the nail on the head there because uh, time moves differently when you are at a camp. <laughs> Uh, it, it 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 is it moves very slowly and yet it moves very rapidly at the same time. So that coupled with 
the intensive experience of befriending and taking care of young people with such tremendously serious illnesses, um, uh, it, it just leaves such an incredible bond. And I'm still in touch with uh, so many of the camp families I'd helped take care of. I'm still in touch with so many of the kids that I, I was working with. In fact, um, you know, one of the main quote unquote characters in the book is this character named Johnny, mm. who, um, you know, it, it was is definitely like the life of the party type character, <laughs> and 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 very closely tied to an actual friend named Jonathan who goes by Johnny, who uh, actually texted me just yesterday. Uh, he was at, and I didn't even know the book was coming. Any anytime that I'm writing a story about my real life, if there are people featured in the book, I give them a heads up. I let them know what I'm working on. Um, he just was, he was up in, he lives in Massachusetts, but he was in Maine because uh, it's school vacation week here in Massachusetts. So he was up in Maine and um, found, found the book at a bookstore and just took a picture of his kids reading the passage that featured him. <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was just like, I don't know, like that's just like meta on so many different levels. He's in Maine, there he is with his kids, and there he is on the page. <laughs> That's wonderful. We're talking with uh, Jarrett Krozaska. His wonderful book is Sunshine, How One Camp Taught Me About Life, Death, and Hope. Uh, you're covering such a heavy subject that there's got to be some balance, and, and there's there's a lot of that. Uh, you read what the book's about, and you think, oh, this, boy, this is going to be a little bit tough. And it is at times, but there are also some very, very funny moments, uh, including I think maybe my one of my favorite moments in the book was uh, Your Time is Chippy. <laughs> Anyone who has ever had to volunteer to be a cartoon costume mascot <laughs> will know and understand that knee-jerk feeling you will have of this plastic and rubber costume that's, that's filled, that's covered in heavy fur that you wear um, in the hot summer sun. So that costume smells like uh, a million other people's sweat <laughs> and uh, your own breath, and you have a very limited scope of vision. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you you captured the scent very well in the book. <laughs> yes, we use the expression "musty fart," which, which 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 in and of itself is funny on the page. But I don't know if you knew this, but we also make audiobook adaptations of my graphic right, novel. right. And it's a full cast, so every every character that utters any word is, is voiced by a different human being, and, and we use sound effects to create theater of the mind. Uh, but the session in which we recorded the musty fart line, um, <laughs> we were like school children with very expensive audio equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there are also some some incredibly poignant moments in the book. So many of them center around uh, two of the young people that you worked with, Diego and Eric, and and what a remarkable story they had. And boy, the part that got me though, that uh, had me sitting there getting a little dusty in the room, was reading about the wish boats. Yeah, right. Uh, so that's an amazing and beautiful tradition uh, at camp uh, and during arts and crafts during the week. Kids get these little, these, you know, these little wooden boats that they decorate, that they they write their wishes on, and they paint it however however they want to. And at the very last night of camp, after the talent show, after the farewell show, uh, 
that we take their wish boats and we go to Lake Sebago and there's a little, a little candle is placed on, on, on the boat and it, that candle is lit and the boats go off and the, and the children make a silent wish for what they want in life. And, um, you know, it's, if you got, if you got a little, if it got a little dusty in the room when you were reading the book, wait until you hear the audio book. Mm. Because, um, because when, when adapting a visual book for audio, Anything that's told in the illustrations has to have some kind of sound cue. And what we did was uh, we basically created a Greek chorus, oh. children uttering their wishes. Um, I, 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 I helped direct and produce these audiobooks. And so I actually built out a little audiobook studio in a, in a closet in the basement here. And, and basically that production is filled with the voices of my friend's kids and my kid's friends. <laughs> we made it really convenient to have it here. Uh, we're having friends over to say, hey, would you you want to run downstairs and we'll record a few things? You guys, are you guys anyone down for that? So, uh, and, um, so it's a Greek chorus of young people uttering their wishes, which, you know, uh, given the set of circumstances these kids are dealing with, are, are, you know, it's very heavy what kids might wish for. Wow. Well, I've got to check that out, too. Uh, the book is is wonderful. And I, I love your story and your personal story. And I, to me, the, the word inspiration gets overused. I, I think it's it's more important. And I, I work with kids. I'm a high school teacher. And, and I, I think your personal story is one that so many of those kids can connect with and, yes, be inspired by, but also yeah, see a path to getting through some of the struggles that so many young people face. Well, thank you, Rich. And I, and I hope so. And I think that when you're a young person, it's hard to envision anything beyond your your current set of circumstances because mm. it's all you've ever known. Uh, but there's a great big world out there, and um, as you as you grow up and as you move through this world, you you get more and more control over how you operate in that world. And I kind of liken it to this, you know, when, as a teacher, you know, uh, when you're a young person, if you need to go to the bathroom, you have to ask permission. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to get like a little slip of paper that tells anyone who stops you that you have permission to go use the bathroom. <laughs> but as an adult, I tell kids, you know, when I need to go to the bathroom, I just walk to the bathroom and go. I don't have to talk to anyone about it. I don't have to ask if I can go pee. I, I will urinate on my own accord <laughs> when I want to. And uh, that is kind of like a metaphor for life. Like when you, when you grow up and you move into this world, you don't need a hall pass. You you are a controller when, when you walk around and move around. It is a powerful story, a wonderful read, Sunshine, How One Camp Taught Me About Life, Death, and Hope. Jared Krozaska, thank you so much for visiting with us. I enjoyed the book, and I, now I have to go have to go give a listen to the audiobook version, too, and I, I can't wait for that. Well, thank you, Rich, and I, I hope everything is beautiful up in Maine, and I, I look forward to Getting back to your great state at some point this summer. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for visiting with us today. Thank you, Rich. Jared Krozaska talking about his terrific new graphic novel, Sunshine. Our thanks to Jared and thanks to University of Maine professor and author Michael Sokolow. And, of course, thanks to you for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.